Welcome to SVU Pod, especially heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We are on season four, episode three, Vulnerable. Major trigger warnings for anybody who struggles with elderly abuse because this is fucked up. Can I start? Yeah. We open on Gabe's fan. (laughs) Gabe really needs a bedtime fan. So as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh. (laughs) A couple sleeping in their bed and the lady wakes up to sounds coming from the other room. And she's like, holy shit, Armando, somebody's out there. So he grabs a gun and tells her to hide in the closet. And he's like half asleep, half annoyed. And you can mm-hmm. tell he's a little scared. And this guy is fucking Robert Kelly. As soon as I saw him, I'm like, why do I know your face a second and a half into this episode? Mm-hmm. He's a comedian and an actor. He was in Trainwreck. He's a stand-up. He was on the show Louis. He played Louis C.K.'s brother in that show, which was a great show. Yeah, it was. But now it's majorly tarnished. But great fucking show at the time. Anyway, this guy's got a gun. He is going to investigate the sound that's coming from outside their bedroom in their apartment. So the dude rounds the corner. He's got the gun drawn like a fucking cop and sees that there's a window open and the refrigerator door is open. Mm -hmm. His girlfriend is on his fucking heels because she didn't (laughs) listen to shit. She did not go into the closet. She's got a baseball bat like right (laughs) up behind him. Dude cocks the gun and you see this little old lady pop her head around the fridge door and goes, is that you, Itsy? They're like, who the fuck is Itsy? And who's this little old lady? Cut to Benson and Stabler being briefed by a cop who says, I think Granny's only knitting with one needle if you catch my drift. I like I was going to put that in and then I was also like, I hate it. I know. I hate it. So the lady doesn't have an ID and she can't tell them her name. They think that she thinks she lives there. Mm -hmm. At least that she's familiar with the place. This woman is sitting in a chair being looked at by a paramedic and she asks Benson and Stabler why there are all these men here. Benson asks her what happened and she just replies with, I need to talk to Itzy. So they're trying to figure out what this woman's talking about. And this woman Mm -hmm. is not completely able to process what's happening around her. Benson asks her if Itzy hurt her. And the lady's like, what? (laughs) You don't know shit. Yeah. Basically. (laughs) Lady's like, what do you know? And Benson's like, just what Itzy told me, which I was like, slick, Benny. Good. Yeah. The lady looks nervous all of a sudden and just Mm -hmm. says, Itsy promised not to tell. And she starts crying and tells Benson, he had his way with me. Benson gently asks her if she can look because the woman looked down or whatever at her nightgown. So she pulls Mm -hmm. her nightgown down a little bit to expose just the top of her chest. And there's a bunch of cigarette burns on her skin. Mm. This is going to fucking suck. And I hate this already. In the hospital, another lady doctor. There's been like three since season four. There's like a lady doctor epidemic happening in New York at this time, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) She tells Benson Saylor that the woman doesn't have any abrasions or fluids in her rape kit, but they have to wait for it to get processed. But she has 12 raw burns to her breasts and genitals. And I'm like, fuck, that's awful awful um the doctor thinks that they won't get much info from her because she probably has alzheimer's Mm -hmm. the hospital does not provide long-term care and the doctor needs someone to release her to benson's like what the fuck this lady needs to be taken care of and this in itself just with our healthcare system is a huge chunk of our throwaway culture because it's like yeah 
well, there's nothing we can do for her, and then just like shuffle her out into the street. They have no idea where this woman even belongs. Yeah, and the doctor was like irritated, probably because she's sick of answering these questions. Like, mm-hmm. we don't do that here. Right. So at the precinct, Benson has this lady in a room and asks her if she's up for talking now. This lady's really confused and she starts asking about where her purse is, even though she didn't come in with one. Mm-hmm. Benson tries to get her name by asking if her name was in the purse. And then the lady turns on Benson and she's like, you took the purse. Mm-hmm. You did this, you know, and Stabler tells her that maybe the person who hurt her took the purse. So Benson's asking her if she was attacked at home. The woman says that she was in her bedroom asleep when he came in and pushed up her nightgown. She tried to hit him but couldn't move. She's really upset. She says she knows the perp and that he stays at her house because he lost all of his money investing and he drinks every night. They ask her what his name is and she sort of like pauses and then says, who? And like cutely eats a little cracker. Yeah, she has a little saltine. I want to take a minute here. So anyone who has had a loved one with Alzheimer's or dementia knows Mm -hmm. how heartbreaking a conversation like this can be. And I learned how to deal with it when my grandpa developed Lewy body dementia, which is so fucking brutal. Yeah. The decline is really rapid. It's heartbreaking to watch the confusion and the fear and the hallucinations and everything happen and try to be there for them in the correct way because there is a way to be in their reality with them so the number one thing that they tell you is to never invalidate their reality so if Mm -hmm. i was visiting my grandpa and i came in and he's like aren't you cold because he would think that we're out in the woods in the snow Mm -hmm. and i would just go no i'm I'm feeling pretty good what's going on and then have him kind of direct what we're talking about not go you're actually in a room you're in this it's it's too confusing for them and it's just not what they recommend and then they're gonna get like mad you know or upset you know Up, upset confused mad um embarrassed um mm-hmm. just feel just imagine sitting in reality and having somebody tell you that that's not reality it's legit that is what gaslighting is right and so yeah. when this is that person's reality and then you tell them that's not happening and they're like i'm fucking 80 goddamn years old are you kidding me like right who are you you know and it's not even just anger it's just oh There's so much, there's so much to it. When my grandma was dying, um, she used to, we'd all be in her, the house and she would be like talking about how her brothers who have been long dead were Mm -hmm. outside the house, like changing all the light bulbs or whatever. And we'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's really nice of them. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's like definitely bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. And sad. It's so, it's sad. And there's like scary moments too, where you don't know what to do. I just wanted to hit on that because that's something that I didn't know until this was going on with my grandpa. And Benny and Staves are doing a really great job in talking to this woman. Right. Especially Benson. She's so Mm -hmm. compassionate. I love her. Yeah. On the other side of the glass, Craig is telling Munch and Toots how sad and scary that must be. Munch says, this still trap starts to rust? Call Kevorkian. And Toots says, consider that done. And I thought that was really funny at the time. And then yeah. I, thought, I was like, if everybody remembers Dr. Kevorkian, was he in Michigan, Detroit? Yeah, I have a little blurb here. He passed away. Kevorkian's long dead, but uh, he was a pathologist who advocated for human euthanasia for terminal patients. He was in prison mm-hmm. for eight years for assisting in a woman's suicide and was charged with second degree murder. He was dragged through the media for being a monster, but eventually a broader understanding of what he was actually advocating for was reached. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Kragen wants them to have Adult Protective Services pick her up, Munch and Toots recanvass the apartment building and the neighborhood that she was in, and no one knows who she is. If her abuser lives with her, he won't be calling missing persons on her. But she couldn't have gotten that far in a nightgown. There's a reason she broke into that apartment. The manager who's been there for 20 years has never seen her. She must have lived there before, and Kragen wants Munch and Toots to find out. Yeah, because people that have, they kind of like go to familiar places, you know? It's like yes. their short-term memories pretty much gone, but a lot of that long-term stuff is there, you know? At the National Archives, Munch and Toots are talking to this little dude who is pumped about the yeah. 1930s archives just being unsealed. Right. He's like, I can find anyone who lived in anywhere in the city. He was like, well, like a little turtle man, you yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> so they find the apartment. The father's name was Ellsworth. The mom's name was Hilda. And they had three daughters, Lilith, Isabel, and Millie. Today, they'd be 83, 82, and 80 years old. I love all of those names. I know. Cut to Benson and Stabler. They're showing a photo of the victim to a woman who tells them that both her sisters have passed. This lady has delivery driver box mover energy, but for gardening, mm-hmm. she just keeps troweling as these SVU detectives question her. Can you imagine in real life? Like, I feel like if a real life detective would be like, excuse me, could you stop for a literal minute? This is so distracting. Right. And the lady's just like, yeah, well, um, both of my sisters have passed. <gasps> and she's back down yeah. in the dirt. She's like, I don't stop gardening for anything. Anybody. These tulip bulbs need to get in the ground. It's after May 3rd. <gasps> My birthday. <laughs> So this woman who can't stop gardening calls her sister Izzy. And Benson was like, oh, did anyone call your sister Itsy? And she stops, kind of, and goes, dear Lord, Itsy and Bitsy. I haven't thought of her in years. She was a neighbor girl down the street. Isabel's best friend, Bitsy for Bess McIntyre. Fucking finally, they ID this woman. Benson asks if Bess ever lived with her and her family. She says no, but sometimes Bess snuck over through a window in the middle of the night and cried herself to sleep they were like oh what's that about she goes Bess had what we used to call a funny uncle Mm -hmm. this woman goes on and says that she and her sisters weren't allowed to play at Bess's house when her uncle lived over there so we're getting a a few more of the puzzle pieces here Mm -hmm. actually like these are like all of the corner pieces that are necessary mm-hmm. to even get to the middle. Yeah. In the squad room, little cutie Bess is taking a little old lady nap. Oh, she's so cute. Yeah. And she wakes up to Benson being like, hey, hi, waking up this sleeping old lady who doesn't have a memory. And then going, oh, sorry, did I wake you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit. Well, Bess wakes up and she doesn't remember Benson. She's coming out of her sleep confused. I mean, oh my God. Benson asks the woman if she goes by Bess or Bitsy now. And she says, well, I go by Bess. She doesn't know where she is, why she's there. Benson reminds her that she was attacked. But then she asks if it was her uncle. Bess says yes. But when questioned when her uncle lost his money and started staying with her and her family, she said he lost it in 29, which is when the stock market crashed. She's talking about the start of the Great depression which is obviously not recent benson goes that was over 70 years ago oh my god it's 90 now so bess is confused this is where it's kind of like i know that she has to get information out of her but she's just confusing her yeah she doesn't know what's going on right now no she doesn't she knows that her uncle hurt her but benson is talking about currently and this woman's mind is you know 70 years prior right yeah so benson asks who's hurting you now and bess just doesn't answer because she kind of shuts down because she doesn't know what's going on. Right. In the squad room, Craigan tells everyone that Bess's rape kit came back negative. Huang comes out of the room after interviewing Bess. He says the recent attack triggered some memories of her childhood molestation. This is later in the living room of the precinct. 
instinct, like the yeah. bullpen. Huang doubts that Bess will ever be able to tell them who is hurting her now. Munch says that he looked into Bess's uncle and he was arrested in 53 for five counts of rape, but not Bess's. Luckily, <laughs> luckily he was killed in prison in 57. Jesus. <laughs> I know. I don't care. Yeah. Huang says they're looking for a sadist, someone who enjoys the torture, but he's not sure if it's sexual or anger based. Mm -hmm. Huang thinks the dude is young or socially stunted and he chose an old woman because of feelings of inadequacy yeah Toots walks in and Toots walks in and says he found Bess through Social Security. Her checks get sent to Jubilee Towers. At Jubilee Towers, Benson and Stabler are making their way to talk to somebody in charge, and they're noticing that it's a super nice nursing home. The assistant administrator, Hope Garrett, who, okay, pause, she's played by Mary Kay Place. I love her. She has 142 acting credits. She's Aunt Oopie in Shameless, Adeline in Big Love, Mrs. Gilcrest in Girl Interrupted, Floris in Being John Malkovich. She's awesome and immediately recognizable. She's been in a million different things, okay? In this, she's the assistant administrator, Hope Garrett. She overhears Benson being like, oh, this is a pretty nice nursing home. And she's like, actually, it's not a nursing home. It's an assisted living facility. And they're like, oh, cool. Hi, we're looking for someone. She's like, nobody's missing. And it was this little game of we're both confused about what the other one's talking about. Mm -hmm. Turns out Bess had been there, but she was released to her son, Joe, a few weeks ago. You know what I said mm -hmm. here? Mm. I don't trust this woman. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean... There was a point where I was like, was it her? Because she's famous, you know, and I recognized her face. But then I thought, I'll tell you. Yeah, we'll get there. So now we cut to the hallway of an apartment building. A super is letting Benson and Stabler into Joe's apartment because they have a warrant. <laughs> he walks in. He's like, Mr. Shaman, these folks have a warrant. I'm letting them in. Just like <laughs> screaming. I know. I stopped to IMDb this dude because I recognized him too hard to not do it. He's actor Lou Martini Jr., which is a great fucking name. Whoa. Okay? He's actually in eight episodes over 20 years of SVU. His first was a paramedic in season two, and he just continued to get more prominent roles over the years mm -hmm. until he became a reoccurring character in 2019, Counselor Fredo. Counselor Fredo. Yeah. Okay. He also had a reoccurring role in The Sopranos along with 140-something other credits. One of his very first roles, Boy at Wedding in The Fucking Godfather. Whoa. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Joe's not home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The super says this apartment is actually Bess's. Joe just lives there. He does smoke. Remember? There's an ashtray. Remember the mm -hmm. burns on Bess? Also, this bitch lives in a fucking rent-controlled apartment that's beautiful for $350 a month. In the city. In the city. In Manhattan. I almost and shit the, my pants. The super does make note of that. He's like, can you believe it? <laughs> Ever since Bess came back to live with Joe, the repo man stopped coming and he's been getting a lot of deliveries. So this guy is... He's just spilling all the tea. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Big screen TV came in over the weekend. Couch, chairs, dia, media unit. <laughs> Joe is obviously cashing in his mom's Social Security or taking advantage of her in some financial way. Yeah. Mainly, we can tell that because the only room that's still looking like shit is Bess's. Mm -hmm. There's fucking shackles on her bed, which right off the bat, I'm like, I mean, they're not metal shackles. They're like 
hospital, hospital like, grade or whatever. And I could see because my grandpa wandered as well. So I can see that like as, for a safety issue. Mm-hmm. But with all of these other things leading up to it, it's kind of like, mm. yeah, all of a sudden Joe busts into the room like, what the fuck is going on? Who are you people? Where's my mom? Is she OK? And they're like, uh, you're coming with us. OMG fucking Joe is played by Jay Thomas. This guy was on Cheers as Carla's husband, Eddie, a million years ago. Fun fact, he lost that role because he made fun of Rhea Perlman's looks on some radio show interview. They killed him off uh, with a Zamboni. (laughs) Oh, shit. He was also famously on Murphy Brown and was most recently on Ray Donovan as reoccurring character Marty Grossman. He passed away in 2017 of throat cancer. In an interrogation room, Joe demands to see his mom. They show him pictures of the bruise marks on Bess's wrists. He says that she's never bruised before. He says that shackling is for her own protection because she wanders at night. They show Joe the pics of her burn marks and he's shocked. He's like, it wasn't me. He didn't know she was missing because he had an early morning meeting, which means that she was shackled. Mm. Well, Benson and Stabler are like, oh, but you're fine with shackling her for like 18 hours. And he was like, no, my housekeeper, Maria Sanchez, takes care of her in the morning. Like she gets her up gives her breakfast, they go to the bathroom, and she didn't call him. So he assumed everything was fine. Joe says he took Bess out of that retirement home because they were charging 7 k a month. And then Stabler's like, yeah, and leaving nothing for you. And then Joe's pissed and says, either charge me or let me fucking go, and I'm taking my mom. On the other side of the glass, in Craigan's Viking longhouse... <laughs> What's a longhouse? It's sort of like a community center almost. It's like a big place where everybody eats and drinks and parties. And it's where like the... (laughs) Were you just like Googling like gathering places? (laughs) No, no. I just, I don't know. I thought I thought it was a typo and it was Viking log house. So I'm glad I didn't add any jokes because I'm like, I don't know how to add to this. (laughs) They're braiding each other's hair. I don't know. It's like a big... They have, um, like, a lot of indigenous cultures have, like, big longhouses, too. Mm-hmm. Benson does not want to give Bess to her son, but Cabot tells her he's her legal guardian and they have no witness and Bess can't make a complaint. Even the strapping to her bed could be argued by a lawyer that Joe thought it was reasonable in keeping her safe. Cabot says that they could maybe be like, mm, in an attempt to keep her safe, he endangered her, but it's a stretch. And then Benson's all sassy and she's like, then stretch it out into an order of removal and goes back into the room to stall Joe. They're always so shitty at, I just, whatever, I know we talk about this all the time, but it's like. they re- Yeah, they want Cabot to be able to to do things that are out of her power yeah like she doesn't have like yeah it would probably be best if she not go back with this guy because he at this point he's the one hurting her in their minds you know Mm -hmm. but at the same time cabot's like i don't get to just make up my own fucking rules i have to follow the rules that apply to my job and like that doesn't yeah in the squad room, Joe comes in and Benson tells him that they have a protective order to place Bess back into Jubilee Towers until everything is sorted out. He's like, Mom! Like, tell them I didn't hurt you, Mom! She doesn't know what's going on. She's like, why is it so loud in here? Yeah, she doesn't She doesn't even know who her son is. Yeah. Joe's like, I'm going to sue every one of your asses. There's a protective order to freeze Bess's accounts and assets. Cabot's going to see if she can dig up anything on Joe. And Joe's super pissed about the like accounts being frozen. Mm-hmm. He is. <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Outside of the building, Benson calls for Maria Sanchez. That's the housekeeper. Yeah, she sees her taking trash out. Yep. Maria asks what's wrong with Bess. So that morning, she went to take care of Bess, but no one was there. And she assumed Joe took her to the doctor. They tell Maria that Bess ran away the night before. And he, Stabler does this like annoyingly and like annoying waves. Did, did you see that? Yeah. Like, annoyingly wave. He was like, come here. 
Come here. He's yeah. like, she's yeah. like, okay. Because she was standing at the bottom of these stairs, taking the trash out from like a basement area. And he's up on the street, like talking down to her and then does the hand wave and is like figuratively talking down to her. <laughs> like, I don't have time uh, for this. Get, get up here. Yeah. And you're like, fuck you, dude. She says she's never seen any marks on Bess and has never seen Joe hurt her. But she does say when he's stressed, he's like really mean to his mom and like says mean shit to her. Yeah. And he was super stressed the night before Bess disappeared because apparently he was like throwing a party that night i'm so mad at these fictional people i know <laughs> benson and stabler are now over talking to joe at adventures in capital his boo, your name's stupid boo your <laughs> company sucks you suck <laughs> he said he had invited a few investors over but promised that none of them touched his mom his assistant pops in and says hey joe your visa was declined she looks like melissa gorga from real housewives of new jersey but you don't care but i do so i wanted to say it yeah dude has some business problems yeah he's like send a check and she's like but the bank said he's like do it <laughs> yeah he's like oh my god you guys fucked everything up when you froze my accounts and they're like um you mean your mom's accounts yeah and he's like huh. he dragged his bat and threw his baseball up and down while he walked home <laughs> he like kicked a big old rock he was wearing bib overalls <laughs> one of the little buckles was undone <laughs> he had a hole in the knee and a striped t-shirt on he had some chocolate on his face <laughs> a little hanky hanging out the back of his pocket and he had his shoelace untied <laughs> Oh, now I feel bad for Joe. No, he's a douche in a suit with his hair slicked back. He's like, yeah, my fucking mom's accounts. She was a key investor in my small business. And you're not going to go near the investors that were at my party. He refuses to give them the party list. Yeah. So in an alleyway, Munch and Toots are pissed going through the garbage looking for that list. Yeah. Toots is literally inside a whole ass fucking dumpster. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They find a garbage bag full of Joe's stuff and one of them has a ton of cigarette butts in it. One has to have some skin on it. Ew. Yeah. Munch and Toots are now in the lab. A lab lady who, by the way, is like cool as fuck. Yeah. I liked her acting. She was just like, hey, guy. I don't know. She was just cool. Um, um, her, she had a very interesting voice and yes. cadence. It was almost sexy. It was sexy. Yeah. Okay. So this lab lady has all the cigarettes laid out. There's 45 different cigarette butts in five different brands. Any evidence of skin would have been seared off by this cigarette butt, though. They don't really have anything except for fingerprints. And they're like, we can get fingerprints off of that. And she's like, Yeah. Because they're like, oh, DNA off of this is going to take fucking weeks, which is ridiculous. Because any other time they're like, get this to the lab. We need this in 30 minutes. So she's like, oh, yeah. And she starts spraying the cigarette butt with some shit. Ninahydrin. Ninahydrin. <laughs> she's going to run him through the system. Maybe it wasn't Joe. It could have been one of his guests. But as soon as she sprays it, they're like, whoa. And they can see a perfect fingerprint which is mm -hmm. interesting to me again because you don't hold a cigarette like you're pinching it you don't yeah. hold your cigarette like a joint you hold it like a cigarette <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah unless you like roll your fingers off each one to make sure that your fingerprints get on there and then smoke normal <laughs> yeah although you know when you when you put it out sometimes you do that oh that's true yeah, yeah you hold it like yeah no you're right that's why it's on there not because yeah. we need it to be to move the story along. Right. On a car lot, Munch and Toots are hanging out in the background, like weirdly, while some <laughs> guy is trying to sell. Like, it reminded me of when Benson went and sat on the bleachers when he was talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, well, some guy is trying to sell a car. He's stupidly comparing this car to Monet, like a 2000 fucking Corolla or something. Yeah. He's like, this is one of those cars that it gains value over time. And you're like, obviously, this guy is a douche. Yeah. He excuses himself from this couple he's trying to snake sell a car to because he sees Munch and Toots hanging out in the background. He runs over to them and his name is Wilkins. They had found his fingerprints because he used to sell these knives door to door. And when he was bonded, his prints were taken. They asked him if he had any problems with Joe's mom that night at the party, and he said he never even saw her. Apparently, Joe has this idea for some horse racing software that seems like a, quote, sure thing. The dude is, like, being super sarcastic, by the way. Yeah. Joe always has these, like, get-rich schemes that are super stupid. He tells him that one was this weird llama farm that even his mom wasn't interested in. And she was like a principal investor up until about two years ago. Bess was always Joe's principal investor but cut the purse strings. Joe went broke but his mom moved back in and now he has money again. Not good. Now when she has Alzheimer's he can fuck take advantage of her. In the squad room, Munch tells Benson and Stabler that Joe has been leeching off his folks for his entire life. Just then Joe walks in and girl is pissed that they talk to his investor. <laughs> Three of them have already pulled out. He tells them that they're fucking up his shit and that the only time he took money from his mother was to pay for rent. Benson goes, oh, funny. You charged rent five times in one month. And Benson's got this stack of checks in her hand, all made out to cash. Hmm? Joe takes a look at the checks and sighs and says, oh, Andy, my college dropout son has talked her into writing checks before. Andy actually stopped by the party uninvited with one of his buddies. He was only allowed to stay for an hour in the den out of sight. Andy lives in Jersey with his mom and he skis in his jeans. I was just going to I was fucking just going to fucking say that. I love you so much. I was going to say Andy Andy skis in his jeans. Oh my god. Oh. Um, I like how we're laughing so hard like it's our joke. I know, right? It's so funny, though. I love it. Over at Andy's mom's place, we see this dude lying on a bed with no shirt on, listening to music with his eyes closed. The music is super stupid. It's like Mario music. It's like beep boop boop boop. He's jamming out. He's just like tapping the bed, and it's like pew 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 pew. Yeah, it's like laser music. Yeah. Benson and Stabler are just standing over him in the room and Stabler leans in really hard on his face. And instead of tapping him or anything or trying to get his attention in any kind of normal way, Stabler physically assaults him by turning the music up super loud. He <laughs> cranks his music and the dude who is in another world flips out, jumps up and he's like, what the fuck? I didn't even know you guys were in my room. Good mm-hmm. thing I wasn't touching my dick. Like, what are you doing in here? They tell him that they know he was at the party. And he said he was pretty much just stuck inside a broom closet. I wouldn't consider that at the party. And they're like, we know you're a college dropout. Why are they dragging this fucking kid? They don't know anything for certain at all. Yeah. Like, we know you're a college fucking dropout. And he gets pissed. And he's like... My grand set me up with a college fund and I had to drop out because my fucking dad drained it. He calls his grandma grand, which immediately disarms me. And mm-hmm. I'm like, he does love her. And he's like, I'm not mad at grand. I'm mad at my dad. So they're like, oh, did she happen to write you a check? And he's like, sometimes she gives me presents, but she doesn't even know her own name. I would never fucking hurt her. So then they go on to ask him about his friend that he brought over to the party. And he's like, his name's Hal. Yeah, he smokes. I'm not sure if Hal was ever alone with Gran, 
because I might have nodded off a bit. I don't know. So they're all three sitting next to each other on the bed and Stabler is sitting soups close to him and he flips Andy's arm over as soon as he says nodded off and he flips his arm over because he's looking for track marks. No words are exchanged at all, but Andy pulls his arm, which is clean, by the way, pulls his arm away and scoots closer to Benson. I laughed really hard (laughs) and I need to I need to post it because it was because they just had this little exchange with zero words and it was really funny and kind of cute. He goes on to tell them that Hal works at Jubilee Towers where his grandma was staying and that's where Andy met Hal and became friends with him. Okay, so at Jubilee Towers, you see Hal trying to pull a cart of like bedpans away from this old guy who was super upset. A bunch of bedpans drop and Hal gets really upset and yells at him and calls him an idiot. Stabler mm-hmm. sees it and he's like, Hal, calm down. I wish Stabes would have pulled his aggro dead energy out here though because yeah. this kind of shit makes my fucking blood boil. I know. Benson asks the guy if he's okay and he's like, he's trying to kill me and Hal's like, this happens every day. This old man is afraid of needles but he has to go to keep Stabler wants to talk to Hal in private and Hal is just like all worked up because he says he's had a lot of quote troublemakers all day. And you see out the window with that Bess is in a wheelchair talking to Munch and Toots. Hal says Bess isn't a troublemaker. She's a dream. Benson and Sailor tell Hal that they heard he saw Bess the other night and accused him of burning her. He legit says, I don't know what you guys have been smoking, but I have lives to save. Which I was like, ew. Yeah. In the administrator's office, Hope says that Hal has been there for over a year and the only serious complaint he's had is that Mr. Jackson accused Hal of trying to suffocate him. She checked in on it but didn't find anything and also Mr. Jackson has Alzheimer's. She says that it's kind of hard to sauce these things out sometimes because reality and fiction blend in these instances. Munch and Toots find Mr. Jackson painting in a communal room and he has on this oxygen tank. He was like, hey, are you guys the nude models I ordered? <laughs> he's like, I'm just kidding. It was a joke. <laughs> he said it so like, stop laughing immediately. He's like, that was a joke. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. <laughs> he says that Hal is a fucking serial killer and pinches him all the time. And one time Jackson bit him really hard and Hal cut off his oxygen and Hal whispered to him, you're going to die soon, old man. Mm. I was like, holy shit. Nobody looked into it because they took Hal's word over his. Toots is like, we believe you. Then Mr. Jackson starts talking about the clan members roaming the halls at night. He looks at Toots and goes, you better watch your back. Mm-hmm. Munch and Toots are discouraged by that. But Munch says that even paranoid people are right sometimes. Right. In the salon, these fucking women are in their Mm. roller sets being amazing. Yeah. They have those little like heater things. And they're all sitting there just sassy as if it is. It's 1955 if it's a day to these women right now. Mm -hmm. They're telling Benson and Stabler that Hal's kind of a fucking dick. Mm -hmm. One of the women tells them that she scratched Hal pretty hard, but goes in to tell them the details of it. She had hip surgery. And when she came back, she woke up in the middle of the night and fell like someone was trying to suffocate her. So she thought she was dying and just started clawing at whatever was in front of her. And all of a sudden she could breathe again. When she looked up, Hal was standing over her and he was all scratched up in the face and tells her she was hallucinating. The whole time this other little old lady sitting behind her going, mm-hmm, he's a dick. Yep, yeah. piece of shit. <laughs> just like, yeah. like uh, uh, hyping her. Hyping her up. Because yeah, she was like, well, at first she didn't really want to tell the story and her friend's like, do it. Yeah, <laughs> do it. <laughs> in the precinct, Munch and Toots are doing a walk and talk with Craig and they tell him about how Hal is a prick. He pinches the patients, steals their dentures, plays keep away with their oxygen. The problem is every patient was either doped up or had Alzheimer's. Daddy Craig says that just makes the victims even more vulnerable. 
Duh. Mm-hmm. It makes them unreliable witnesses, and therefore they're the perfect victim for Hal. And it's right. probably why he took the fucking job. Mm-hmm. Cabot comes in with a notice of claim filed six months ago against Jubilee Towers. It was for a 10 milli negligence suit which is awful the case was settled with a non-disclosed clause the woman's name was dahlia brown and cabot is gonna go get that woman exhumed in the me office corner warner is with munch and toots and the body of dahlia brown when dahlia was embalmed it flushed away any toxins but corner warner did a tissue sample and didn't find any poisons (laughs) i like hyped it up like she but she found nothing The medical report says cardiac arrest, and Corner explains that that kind of means that they don't really know what happened. But there is a tiny pinprick in Dahlia's ditch that is unaccounted for in the medical report. For anybody that doesn't know what a ditch is, it's your it's your elbow pit. Oh. Yeah. Gabe's a tattooer. Do they? Not everybody calls it a ditch. Okay. And I'm like, technical term is an elbow pit. It's actually, God, I, I forget the elbow, the, the cubital fossa. Yeah. So it's in her ditch. <laughs> But there's a tiny pinprick in her cubital fossa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it shouldn't be there because she was in the hospital just to get her fucking knee drained. What mm. in the shit? Yeah. At Jubilee Towers, head lady Hope tells Benson and Stabler the reason why they settled with Dahlia's daughter is because it was cheaper than going to court. They weren't trying to hide anything, but people who are grieving are always looking for somebody to blame. Benson tells her that Dahlia's last meal was delivered by someone with the initials HS, and there's Mm. nobody else that works there with those initials besides Hal Shipley. Mm. They want to talk to anybody who could have maybe seen Hal with Dahlia that night. In the front room of Jubilee Towers, Stabler says to Benson that he doesn't want to get old. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Benson says, in our line of work, be careful what you wish for. So Stabler had talked to a bunch of people and nobody really remembers any fights between Dahlia and Hal, but that Dahlia was a pain in the ass. Hal had means and opportunity with a bunch of people in there. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. the front desk lady yells that room 410 is coding. Oh my God, that's fucking Bess's room. Mm-hmm. The crash cart is running into Bess's room and Hope is freaking out saying that Benson and Stabler were right. She tells them that after she talked to them, she called Hal and told him to finish his shift and leave, like canning him. Yeah. She told him it was because the way he treated the patients and he was fucking furious. Hope was worried about Bess after this, so she went to her room to check in on her and saw Hal leaving. She was like, what the fuck? Hope goes into Bess's room, checks her pulse, and said it was weak, so she pressed the code button and started CPR. Mm -hmm. Just then we see Bess getting wheeled out, and she's conscious, but barely. But you know what? Benson notices a bloody needle mark in her cubital fossa, (gasps) just like Dahlia. Her ditch! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all this, this is all super funny. Uh, I was like, how do I respond to that? And I was going to go, do, do, do. And then I was like, nah. Just, just Andy, like, tss, tss, background the shirt off. Okay, so outside. <laughs> Outside, Benson and Stabler find Hal lounging and smoking a cigarette. Benson's like, where the fuck were you in the last 15 minutes? And he was like, I was in the stock room taking inventory. Stabler says, let's take a ride. Hal's like, am I being arrested? Benson says no. And then Hal says, then screw off. Stabler kicks the chair underneath his feet. Hal stands up and drops his smoke. And he's like, <laughs> whatever, let's party. He, he like gets in Stabler's face and like just drops it. Stupid. Whatever, let's party. 
Um, I just sent you it because I took a video of that. So the way he drops his cigarette really dramatically is like Mm. he's flicking it, but then it just drops like he hard opens his hand and it made me laugh really hard. And then he goes, whatever, let's party. And I'm like, that's the next step in that whole interaction is for you to then close your fist and take a swing at Stabes. Like, what do you mean? It's like, whatever, let's party. And it's like, who are you, fucking Bruce Willis 30 years ago? What are you doing? (laughs) Right. But then he's like, "Mm," and then he just walks angry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. As Stabler's walking him out, Benson picks up his cigarette and puts it in a little baggie. In an interrogation room, Daddy Craig's fucking drop kicks the door open (laughs) and says, hope I'm not interrupting. (laughs) Hal stands up and says, yeah, a real tearful goodbye and stands up like he gets to leave. And Craig is like, mm-mm, and shoves Hal shoulders down back into the chair and says, oh, you really don't want to miss this. He says they got his prints off the smoke that he dramatically dropped outside at Jubilee Towers. And Hal's like, you can't do that. And Benny's like, you voluntarily discarded it. And Daddy Craig says, meaning... Meaning legally, your butt is ours, as is this one from Joe Sherman's Party Trash. And I feel like a high five would have not been inappropriate in that situation. Okay. (laughs) Boom. Woo. They matched the two. Okay. So this is where our true acting begins because Mm -hmm. Benson and Stabler are in there with Daddy Craig's. They can all read each other. They're yes anding the shit out of the situation in front of Mm -hmm. Hal. Benson, Stabes, and Craig's are all talking to each other. Hey, we've got your DNA on this cigarette. We've got the DNA from this other cigarette that has seared flesh from Bess on it. And Craigan's like, oh, yeah, I'm about to go pick that up. And they're like, cool, let us know because uh, we won't need a confession from panty waste over here if we get that. And Benson's like, yeah, cool. No confession, no plea bargain. Stabler's like, which means you do the max at Hal. Mm-hmm. And Hal's like, okay, as they're having this conversation, right? Craigan walks out the door and we see him start talking to Toots. And Toots is like, Dude, CSU said that they couldn't get flesh off the cigarette butt. And Craigan's like, oops. And he puts his finger on his pursed <laughs> lips. <laughs> I've been a bad little boy. You. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So they're they're just like fucking. Uh, they're Lying. trying to smoke him out. Right. Yeah. Back in the interrogation room. Hal's like, well, I'm freaking out. So I'm going to admit to burning Bess because he thinks they've got him cornered. Mm-hmm. He says he wasn't planning on it, but Andy owed him a lot of money and said that he could get Bess to write a check for him. So Hal went in there to try to get a check from Bess and she yelled rape like she used to all the time at the retirement home. And now that I'm seeing that, I'm like, oh, it's probably from the fucking trauma she experienced. Yeah. And I thought earlier he said Bess was a dream. Well, he Whatever. said that to like so they would stop bothering him. Mm. Stabler's like, oh, I know you have a real shitty job. And Hal's like, no, you don't. I had to clean them, feed them, wipe up their crap. And Stabler's like, yeah, so they owed you. Which is like, if that's not the job that you want to do, just we all know where I'm going with that. Just, I know. If you're not leading with compassion in a job with a vulnerable population, get a different fucking job. I hate everything and everyone so much. Yeah, except for sometimes people can't, you know? What do you like, mean? Sometimes people can't get different jobs. You can't. No, no, no. That's that's a place where I'm going to say, fuck that. Yeah. Fuck that. If you are putting other people at risk that's, or you're yeah. hurting other people, I don't care if you think the only job you can have is being a nanny. If you're hurting kids, yeah. then be fucking hungry. I don't give a shit about you. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. 
Anyway, so Stabler's like, yeah, they owed you. And Hal's like, when she started yelling, I went over to quiet her. I can't even do, I'm so worked. I can't, you finish this. Hal says when she started yelling, he went over to quiet her up and his cigarette accidentally burned her chest and she just started screaming rape louder. And then he says he just snapped. He said to Bess, quote, I'll show you rape. And he says he pulled up her nightgown and just jabbed the cigarette again and again and again. Stabler asked what happened when he saw her today. He's like, I didn't see her today. I have proof I was in the stock room when she coded. So back at Jubilee Towers, Munch and Toots are going through paperwork. Looks like Hal's been stealing drugs too. The computer is like way too high tech to mess with the times and everything Hal told them about the nurse's codes match up with what he has in his locker because he had to use like nurse's codes to get in and out of drug stuff. Mm-hmm. Hope said she saw him but if the computer isn't lying, is she? I fucking knew it. Yeah. Didn't trust that. I thought like yeah. when she ran in there, I was like, oh, she really cares about these people. Betty and Staves are doing a walk and talk with a nurse. She's telling them that Hope saved a few people over the years. Always the same thing. CPR, etc. And I love this lady because she's like also talking to this other nurse and they have this like back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just cute. Benson walks into Bess's room. Joe's in there telling Bess he's not going to let anyone else hurt her. He's packing her shit and his son Andy is holding Bess's hand. Benson doesn't really think that Bess should leave yet. And then Joe is freaking out about how he's not going to leave her with the guy that burned her and Andy is telling him to calm down because he's upsetting grandma because Joe gets all worked up. Mm-hmm. Andy leans in and whispers to his grandma pew 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 pew. <laughs> kidding. I am. Andy's the only likable character in this right. fucking story outside of Bess. Yeah. Andy tells her that he'll be back soon with brochures for some new places. Benson tells them that Hal is in custody and won't hurt anyone else. <laughs> Bess tells Benson to quote make this man be quiet. She's talking about her son. Yeah. And Benson's like, it's fine. He's just leaving. And Joe's like, "Uh, no, I'm not. Think again. Mm -hmm. Because he was wrongly accused, his protective order was dropped. Benson's like, well, I think the case for misappropriation of funds just starting. And Hope walks in. Joe thanks Hope for saving Bess's life. And then the camera like slowly pans into Benson's face. She's just like, I fucking have an eye on you, bitch. You know? Pew, 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 pew. Pew, 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 pew. Is that the fucking Jurassic Park theme song? Yeah. I think it was. It zoomed in on Benson's face and it just kept zooming until it was just her eye. Benson and Hope are doing a walk and talk. Benson mentions how Hope has saved three people so far. You know, there was one loss. Mm. Hope was like, oh, you know, I'm just doing my job. I was passing by x-ray and saw this guy slumped over. Benson is like, he was left alone dead and no one noticed. Was he breathing or dead? Hope says that he was breathing, but but was dead. And I was like, what? Did you hear that? Yeah. And Benson was was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. She says she didn't know how long he had been there. So she pulled him to the floor to do CPR just in case. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to give up, but they had to pull her off. In the squad room, Benson tells the gang, this woman is a complete fucking whack job, you guys. (laughs) Yeah. Huang says it could be malignant hero syndrome, where someone sets up an emergency situation and then comes out a hero. In a way, it's like Munchausen by proxy. Right. In that it's for attention. Mm -hmm. Benson got Bess's talk screens back, and Huang points out that she had epinephrine in her system. If epinephrine is given to someone with a healthy heart, it speeds up the heart and mimics a cardiac arrest. Stabler yells, son of a bitch. Hope was a nurse. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) You guys, holy fuck. (laughs) 
She worked at a nursing home and her license was revoked. 50- Hold on to your butts, everybody. <laughs> Hope's a nurse. He's like, grab onto my butt, you guys. <laughs> oh, then they all just fly away holding on. <laughs> I pictured them jumping off the side of a, of a ship because he was going to keep them afloat. Afloat. Yeah, yeah. Okay. See, in my mind, he's like, hold on my, my, on my butts. And they all grab a hunk and he flies into the air and his fly is going like... <laughs> When you, said, the- <laughs> when you said see in my mind, I'm like, do not say seven months later. It doesn't make sense there. <laughs> so she worked at a nursing home and her license was revoked 15 years ago due to gross negligence. Mm. She failed to dilute potassium chloride doses. Jeez. So when they're looking back at that, it's like, oh my God, she wasn't doing that by accident. Like that, your license is revoked and da 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 and whatever. But it's like, you were doing this by accident not good enough. You can't be a nurse anymore. But Mm -hmm. was she doing it by accident? Mm -mm. Right. At Jubilee Towers, Hope is showing a new client, The Diggs. This guy is adorable, by the way. Yeah. Uh, He's just like tall, pants pulled up, suspenders. She tells the guy he's going to love their water aerobics class. Yeah. Benson and Stabler walk in and then Benson's like, "Ah, I hear that really gets your heart rate up. Like, are they waiting outside? You'd be like, I gotta wait for her to say something that I can say something to. Yeah, it's that double Dutch bob that they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Then Stabler says, it's a lot safer than being injected with epinephrine. So she gets waspy as fuck right here. And she comes up to Benson and Stabler and quietly says, it's not a good time to talk about the unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is the creepiest way that you could address this right now. Yeah. They tell her that they pulled all the used syringes from the Sharps containers and Hal's fingerprints weren't on any of them, but they found her prints on a syringe of epinephrine, which is a lot of work. Fuck, man. All the Sharps yeah. containers. Mm-hmm. Okay. She's like, well, you know, Hal did it. He confessed. And then Benson says, Hal confessed to burning her, but you don't give a crap about that as long as you had the spotlight. At this point, you see people kind of forming around you know, like patients yeah. and stuff. She's like, why are you trying to embarrass me? Stabler starts reading her rights and handcuffs her. At the trial, Cabot has Coroner Warner on the stand. She says that she had examined 22 deaths at the place where Hope used to work and found evidence of potassium poisoning in seven. Okay. Oof. It was never found in their medical reports because people expect the elderly to die. Autopsies are only done one in 25 times about. And also when cells die, they release potassium. It would have been impossible to detect. Coroner Warner found it by examining their EKGs. There can be excessive amounts of potassium when the kidneys are failing, or it could be introduced into the body. And none of them had kidney failure. She was getting ahead of every fucking question or any way they could refute that, where she's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't even ask me about the fucking kidneys because I checked that shit. Yeah. Hope gets so upset and stands up and starts yelling. Doctors make mistakes all the time. You know, how many times have I've had to cover their asses? And then the judge is like, shut up, bitch. <laughs> or he's like, shut that bitch up. Yeah. Um, but more like judgy. He was like, shut that stupid bitch up. Look at her hair. <laughs> Look <kidding>. at her hair. <laughs> Cabot continues questioning Coroner Warner. The only administrating nurse with those patients was Hope. Hope freaks out and says, yes, but you have to understand every last one of them was at death's door. I don't think you realize what little time they had left. Cabot's like, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit if they were on their last, very last breath. You have no right to take it from them. Hope keeps just the best. Hope keeps freaking out and says, I help people. What do you do, you stupid bitch? And that is a word for word quote. Yes. And I was like laughing so hard because she really, you know how when we always do it? Yeah. Like that stupid, she did it like that. Yeah. She like wound up to you stupid bitch. And Cabot was just like, blink, blink, 
<laughs> yeah. The judge calls a recess and Hope screaming at her lawyer. And she's like, I don't fucking need this. And she like starts to walk off like she can leave. She's just and like, you know what? I'm leaving. Like only a white lady can. I'm done. Yeah. The jury's faces are priceless. Like they're just like, what in the fuck? And Cab is just like, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you know that, you know that gif of fucking... <laughs> Nicholas, what is it? Nicholas, what is his name? Jack Nicholson, where he's just Jack like Jack Nicholson. <laughs> it was like that. She's like, it's all going to plan. Yes. So this chick is yelling at Benson now and saying that all they talk about is Jubilee Tower and that place she used to work, but she actually worked at other places for 15 years in between. And Benson's like, yeah, and how many of them did you kill? It was so great. Yeah. Because Benson was in the gallery and she's just walking alongside this woman and they're all like, calm down, calm down. She's like, yeah. Benson's yeah. like, I'm going to fight Come this on. bitch. <laughs> yeah. Benson's putting her pixie up in a ponytail and taking her fucking earrings out. She's like, <laughs> she goes, hold my baby, Stabler. <laughs> <laughs> What is that from? Oh, it was some stand-up, I think, a long time ago. It was. Here, hold my baby. Yeah. Yeah. And they have two bailiff guys, like, dragging her off, and she's, like, kicking and screaming, and she's like, none of them. Maybe a few wouldn't pull through for me, but I saved hundreds. Hundreds! And you don't even care about them, do you? And that's it. (laughs) Yeah. You don't even care about them, do you? (laughs) Huh? Yeah. (laughs) I hated that, and I hated it more... Um, now as we were talking about it. Yeah. I hope it translates well, but I like as much as the kids stuff really bothers me, I guess we just don't do, I'm not as desensitized to old people stuff. Yeah. Ugh, just any vulnerable community. It's just, it's just hurts. It's just, ugh. All right, let's do this. All right. Uh, 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 double up. Let's talk about Kristen Gilbert, AKA the angel of death. Kristen Strickland was born and raised in Fall River, Massachusetts. She grew up the oldest of two daughters of her dad, an electronics executive, and her mom, a part-time teacher and homemaker. Pretty solid middle-class life, ordinary family. Kristen was extremely bright, bubbly, friendly, popular. She even graduated high school at 16. Mm. But by the time Kristen was a teen, she had developed a bit of a reputation among family and friends for lying, stretching the truth, building over time in severity. Yeah. She was known to make violent threats in an attempt to get her way, and she seemed to thrive on attention in a way that was extreme. In other extreme measures to manipulate a situation, she had even faked an attempt at suicide. After that, she did receive an order for psychiatric treatment by college officials at Bridgewater State, where she had enrolled. So instead of doing that, she just transferred, actually a couple times, uh, and she ended up receiving her nursing degree. She became a registered nurse in 1988. That year, Kristen also got married to her boyfriend, Glenn. Glenn Gilbert. Glenn. In 1989, Kristen got a nursing gig at the VA in the small, sleepy town of Northampton, Massachusetts. She was revered and even made into a featured article in the magazine VA Practitioner in April of 1990. Her proficiency Mm -hmm. reports were glowing. She always volunteered for extra shifts. Other nurses looked to her as a leader in her ward, especially in crisis situations. She was Mm. always front and center in a coding emergency. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet she was. Fucking yeah, bitch. coding is just basically a hospital red alert. Everybody on deck because somebody's heart stopped. 
Right. Over time, other nurses began noticing the high number of codes and deaths occurring during Kristen's shifts. They passed it off as coincidental at first and even gave her the nickname the Angel of Death as a joke. Jeez. <laughs> Just kind of like, oh my God, yeah. what luck. This happens all the time when you work. Oh my God. It was so frequent that it was that noticeable. Yeah. Meanwhile, Kristen and her husband had two little boys just live in their normal life, except for inside their home. Her husband claimed that Kristen had outbursts of anger, lashing out, but he continued to try to work through it with her. Like she pulled a knife on him once. Jeez. Just when she got mad, she got very mad very she quickly. Got fucking pissed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kristen spent a lot of time at work and there had met and developed a relationship with security officer James Peralt. They eventually were having a full blown affair. Shortly after this, the mysterious deaths began to occur. Mm. Stanley Jagodowski, 66, came in for care, coded, and died. Everyone was super thrown because he had a healthy heart. It just didn't make sense. Okay? Yeah. Henry Houdon, 35, went into the VA with a flu. After the doctor checked in on him and got him comfortable, Henry coded and everyone rushed to him. They got him back, although they were all confused as to why he'd be coding with no known heart issues. Mm -hmm. And he was seemingly fine less than an hour before. They were all celebrating. They were happy and relieved that they had gotten him back. Dr. Greg yeah. Blackman, who was on the floor that night, says he remembers celebrating with the team when they stabilized Henry. Remember, Henry's only 35. And this yeah. is when he said Kristen looked at him and said, well, I wouldn't be too happy. This guy's schizophrenic. What? They just saved his life and she made a verbal note that he wasn't really worth it. What? Yeah. To the doctor. Wow. Henry Houdon would code two more times that night. The third one killed him. He died of cardiac arrest. What in the fuck? In February of 1996, Kenneth Cutting, 41, admitted for sepsis. His heart was fine. Mm -hmm. Kristen went to her supervisor and said, if he dies by eight, can I leave early? Because she had a date. Oh, my God. And she was probably, like, serious, right? Well, I don't know how the supervisor took it. At the time, they're probably like, that's a fucked up thing to say. Yeah. But didn't maybe didn't do the math, or maybe this was something or, that they yeah. took note of. Because eventually people started to be like, what the fuck is with Kristen? Yeah. Kenneth ended up coding later that night, and he didn't make it. He had a wife and a young son, 41 years old. Jesus. A few weeks later, Edward Squera, 69, was admitted with delirium tremens. He had a seizure from alcohol withdrawal. Okay. The treatment for that is something like Valium, you know, uh, something as simple as Valium, and they can usually recover. But he died that night of cardiac arrest. After this, another nurse was like, this is enough. Something is fucking going on here. So she right. started to investigate on her own. She checked the sharps box. You know, the red or orange box where they put hazardous material and needles and whatever. Yeah. She found three empty ampules, those little glass vials with liquid drugs in them at the hospital. And these little things were labeled epinephrine. The mm. level of epinephrine in these doses were not medically used in that ward. They were way too strong. Mm -hmm. So she took this information to her supervisor. Three other nurses had also gone on record leading up to this with suspicions of Kristen Gilbert, just based on like the really weird shit that had been going on and the shit that was coming out of her mouth. Yeah. Epinephrine, just like in the episode. Wait, when when was this? When was this again? Uh, 1996. Oh, this was like probably based off of. Yeah, no, it, that's what I read that it was. Oh, OK. I mean, yeah, down to like they figured it out by checking the sharps box yeah but there were already complaints put in about Kristen. so when a code was called everyone answered the call they said this in the episode too that's why the lady behind the desk was like everybody goes when a code was called 
everyone fucking answered, including the security officer. Even non-medical staff had to be trained in life-saving techniques. So Kristen's BF would have to come to these calls as well, where he would assist her in saving a life. One of the things that the other staff noticed is that she would flirt with him like mid code, like saving somebody, bringing somebody back. She would be like mid chaos being like, what are you doing after this? You know, or whatever. In one instance, she hopped up on the coding patient's chest to do compressions and hiked up her skirt showing the garters she had underneath. She would comment on his muscles as he did chest compressions. Based on what a couple experts had thought, the goal seemed to be attention, not the killing. Like she wasn't killing these people for the thrill of them dying. You know, she was killing them because she wanted them to code so that she could come in and do this savior shit, you know, and be the hero and the one in charge and get this positive attention. Right. So on February 29th, 1996, Stephen Plant, special agent investigator, got a call from the VA. The cops started by cross-referencing suspicious deaths with Kristen's work schedule. Mm -hmm. Every shift, showed a spike in death. So Mm -hmm. if her shift was at night, there would be a spike in deaths on that shift. And then if she was doing an afternoon shift, there'd be a spike there. Anytime she was there, there was a spike. That was the joke, angel of death, that this followed her. But the actual mathematic possibility that this was coincidental was 100 million to one Mm. with the amount of codes that were happening, okay? Meanwhile, there are rumors at the VA about why the investigation is happening. So it's not openly about Kristen at this point, but that's what people thought. As the investigation went on, James Peralt, Kristen's boyfriend slash security officer, started to realize that there was weight to these rumors and broke things off with her. Mm -hmm. She threatened to commit suicide and really began to show signs of cracking. There are rumors about her at work. Her friends were distancing themselves. Her husband had left after he found out about her affair and now her boyfriend broke up with her. Mm-hmm. All the while, she's feeling the pressure of a federal investigation. Okay, so right. she is coming a little bit unglued here. September 26, 1996, the VA gets a phone call. The caller has a low, robotic voice and says, there are three explosive devices in building one, and in 25 minutes, I'll see you in hell. <gasps> What a bitch. So the VA has to evacuate the building. This is a fucking hospital. There's really sick people being fucked with to get them out of the building. Yeah. There was no bomb, but the call definitely helped because boop, 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 stupid Kristen was being followed by investigators the entire time. So a cop had seen her making a call from a payphone at the same time the bomb threat was being called in. So they mm. dumped the phone and they're like, yeah, that call was made to the VA. Police immediately got a search warrant and went straight to her house. They found the jacket that she had been wearing and in the pocket were the operating instructions for the voice changing device. Okay. What was that voice changing device? They found it in her kid's room. It was a fucking talk boy. Home Alone 2 makes an appearance. You got to get you and your Home Alone. It was a talk boy. It's from Home Alone 2. Okay. That's why it was in her house. Guaranteed. But why did she call? So the reason she called is she's trying to distract them with something else. All right. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it backfired on her. Did you say unfortunately? Unfortunately, unfortunately for her. I mean, fortunately, in general, it's good. Yeah. But she also like was not thinking clearly. She's like, how do I get out of this? You know, yeah, she's starting to fucking lose her shit. Yeah. Also in her house, they found medical notes, journals, a drug book with the page on epinephrine dog eared. So this is a lot of stuff, but it's also all circumstantial. 
They need more concrete evidence to be able to take this before a judge. It worked out for them because the bomb threat had gotten her 15 months. So they had some time to collect everything they could and conduct interviews without any interference from her. But how would they be able to tell that these victims were poisoned into cardiac arrest? What do you think they did? Check their EKGs. They exhumed the bodies. Oh, yeah. They exhumed them and tested for abnormally high amounts of epinephrine. And listening to these detectives talk about how heartbreaking it was to go to the families. They're like, you don't know how fucked up it is until you have to do it. Going to a family and being like, hey, can we disturb your loved one because we think they were murdered? Yeah. So doing these tests would be the solid evidence that they needed. And they found exactly what they were looking for. Lethal amounts of epinephrine in all of these cases. While she was being held for the bomb threat, she had attempted suicide, which got her sent away to a psych facility where she was evaluated and diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. I feel like I've been reading about BPD a ton lately. Yeah. So some of the traits are a need for attention, broad mood swings, outbursts, and Mm self-harm. So all all of it really tracked with Kristen. Yeah. Time for the prosecution to go after her. So since this was federal, she was eligible for the death penalty, even though the death penalty is outlawed in Massachusetts. She pled not guilty and was described as being deadpan and cold by M. William Welch, the federal prosecutor, said she just Mm kind of blank stared through the whole thing. She was found guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted murder and the jury gave her life in prison based on their investigation prosecutors believe that she is guilty of at least 60 murders and over 300 codes now that's on the low end i read some other stuff that had the numbers way higher but 300 codes if not more that's insane it's constant Yeah. She's currently serving her sentence in Fort Worth, Texas, and maintains her innocence, but she discontinued her appeals after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that if she was to be given a new trial, the death penalty would be back on the table. Mm. Crazy. Yeah. What happened to her kids? I don't know. Hmm. She just has the one, the one son. I don't know. Wow. What a bitch. Okay. Hey, thanks for listening to another fucked up episode of season four. Next week, season four, episode four, Lust. A public health doctor who tracked HIV cases is found dead in a park. Detectives try to link threatening phone calls to the crime. Follow us on Instagram at svupod. Email us at svupod at gmail.com. Please join our Facebook group, Elite Squad. Oh, Jesus Christ. What is it again? SVU Pod Elite Squad. Yeah, it's super fun. I love it. Also join our Patreon. We've got all kinds of extra stuff. Right now, when we get done recording this, I have a couple things I want to record. We got a spooky email, and I also want to record a video thing, but I'll tell you about it when I'll tell you about it. Okay. For Patreon. Hashtag little bit loud. Oh my god, there's so many cutie pods that are on there now. Mm-hmm. And I've been checking out and they're good. They're good and they need more followers. Yeah. So check them out and rate and review us, please. It helps genuinely. Yeah. Five stars or whatever or five. <laughs> five stars or whatever you want, but like five. So far, we're what, we're three episodes into the season four. It's been pretty good. It's a good season it, so far. Yeah. I'm liking it, except I have a lot of feelings coursing through my body. You know what? We'll work through them together. All of us. Okay. Love okay. you. Bye. Love you. Bye. <laughs> So it's kind of like these two people on either side being like, it's not really me. <laughs> yeah. It's you. And then I'm Why like, would I change my name? He's the one who sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cubital <laughs> fossil. <laughs> <laughs>
and her and her and her cubifas. Cubifasa. In her in her cubimufasa. God. No, Dad. Hope freaks out again. I just got that joke. <laughs> More judgy. Yeah. 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 I was, it, I've the whole time I've been processing that joke. I'm like judgy and judgy. I get it. <laughs> I am not here today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing that so hard, I got a little lightheaded. You know what I was thinking though? I was like, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, unicorns had to have been real. Because look at narwhals, dude. Just yeah. saying. I don't look, know. At <laughs> look at narwhals, dude. Okay. And to our Elite Squad patrons, Haley K, Sonia W, Jenny S, Sky K, Nikki B, Marissa M, Alki H, Sarah A, Annie G, Mary D, Andrew, Andrew, Rebecca D, Miranda B, Shelby W, Lex, Emily T, Kayla W, Mallory G, Eliza W, Bonita R, Marin, Vanessa, Vanessa. P, <laughs> Jess M, Summer M, Melanie G, Courtney W, Ursula S, Emily A, Katrina C, Kate H, Uyanga, Nicole R, Julia P, Sapphire, Kayla, Allison B, Chinese Catherine M, Kate P, Jessica S, Nicole M, Acacia V, Danielle W, Josh H, Emily L, Kelsey D, Jana M, Tammy J, Sarah G, Crystal, and Lucy M. We love you mm. and appreciate you. Thanks for making this possible. You guys fucking rule the school. You're the best, best, best of the best, best, best around. No one's ever gonna put you down. You're the best. The best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>